Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. What's up, everybody? My gosh, what an amazing episode with Rebecca Humkey. I mean, I'm telling you right now, uh, just crushed it. Absolutely crushed it. Talked all about business strategy and how do you create, you know, amazingness in your business despite the challenges of uncertainty and just we're living in a volatile world. But how do you do that? She, this, I mean, she is, I mean, amazing, amazing. I'm telling you right now, if you're a business owner and you want to learn how to thrive, amongst a changing world. This is the episode for you. Hope you enjoy. Stay tuned. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Machazzi. And boy, do we have a special guest. Rebecca Humpkins is in the house. What's up, Rebecca? Hey, Darius. Great to be here. Oh my gosh. I'm so pumped to have you on the show. And by the way, audience, I screwed up. It's Dr. Rebecca Humpkins. But I'm going to call her Rebecca. Is that cool? Do you, do you mind Please if I do. drop the Please title? Please do. Yeah, let's be friends. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, fr- fast friends we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rebecca, do you mind if I do a little bit of housekeeping and then we'll jump in? No, let's do it. Work? Cool. So uh, guys, welcome to the show. For listeners who are new to the show, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. People are creating passion. Oh, whoa, I am messing up today. Hey, uh, Sid, let's let's cut this out. I'm going to redo the, this part. Um, for let me. Sorry, I've never messed up the intro. This is a first okay. for me out of like 300 episodes. I'm intimidating you, aren't I, Darius? That must be <laughs> what it is. I'm kidding. I'm, so I'm kidding. Hey, 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 Sid, we're leaving all this in. Uh, so, <laughs> hey, this is how the sausage is made. So, uh, for listeners new to the show, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. People are living their passions and those creating greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. And Rebecca's not short of passion or greatness. So, um, this is how I found her work. Um, her PR agency, 40A, hit, hit us up. They hit us up, you know, a lot, actually. We get a lot of requests from them. They like our show. Um, sadly, I'm not 100% like, like it's a lot of people that with the, just their content is not perfect for the audience. So, so it sounds like amazing people, but not right for the show. I was telling Rebecca, it's pretty hard to make it on the show. Probably for every hundred requests, I'll book one. So you're, so you're in the 1%. Um, right. And, and it was because, uh, you know, she's coming out with a new book. Obviously she has a cool background. We'll talk about that in a second, but um, the, the, her new book survive, reset and thrive is coming out. 
Uh, it's in pre-order right now. So uh, when's that coming out, by the way? When's your book uh, February 27th, so two weeks. Oh, shoot. So I'm going to fast track this episode so it comes out to support your book launch. See, see how good of a human I am? That'd be um, awesome. So we'll, we'll, we'll bump that up. The, I just bumped her show up three months in, from when it's going to come out. <laughs> so, um, you know, there was a subheading in there talking about uncertainty and, and volatile times mm-hmm. and, and how companies and businesses and folks can thrive despite that. <laughs> and, I, and I read that. I'm like, and it, and it was something that struck me. I was like, wow. I'm super interested to, to learn from someone that, that's been there and done that um, in an academic setting, from a consulting standpoint, mm-hmm. someone that's, that's really done it, it, it from a different perspective than my own. My own is the, from the perspective of running businesses in a volatile environment and getting my ass kicked and then like <laughs> managing through it and yeah. learning. And I heard a really interesting quote um, by, gosh, what's his face? I'm going to blank his name, his name right now. I'll remember it in a moment. But Howard Marks. Howard Marks, I was reading one of his books uh, around, it was around market cycles. Um, and and he said, wisdom is what is gained when you don't get what you want, right? And I'm like, oh my God, I have so much wisdom uh, in my life. And But a lot of it stems from this idea of building businesses in volatile environments with uncertainty and things don't go the way you want them to go. And then you kind of manage around it. So I have a lot of personal stake in like, believing I, I understand how to do it. But I was like, I want to I want to hear about this. This is a, a book that sounds interesting. I want to read it. And and so I asked Rebecca to come on the show. Um, that being the case, I'd love it if you wouldn't mind, Rebecca, if you don't mind giving our audience a little bit of your background as far as just like your professional, you know, you have, by the way, she has a very decorated background. Um, and and I there was so much there. I was like, give us like the the three sentence, like, hey, here's my top. Why, why Darius asked me to be on the show besides the book. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again for having me. So I specialize in high growth strategy. So that's developing strategy, executing strategy, innovating on strategy. I'm a lecturer at the London Business School, as well as Duke in our corporate executive education and an advisor to Boston Consulting Groups University. But I spend more than 80% of my time working directly with entrepreneurs, many YPOers who are looking to grow, rebuild and thrive through extreme uncertainty. And that's what motivated me to write the book to kind of put some of the playbook into words. My my audio cut out in the very beginning when you were saying what you said. So I want to make sure the audience got that. Just the first half of that. Say that one more time. Yeah, no problem. So I am a high growth strategy specialist, which means I focus on developing strategy, executing strategy and innovating on strategy. And I'm a lecturer at the London Business School as well as Duke and also a, an advisor to Boston Consulting Group's corporate university. But I spend more than 80% of my time working directly with organizations and entrepreneurs, many YPOers who are looking to build their companies and thrive, especially when facing uncertainty. How does one, so you have a doctor in front of uh, your name, but how does one just like get into like doing strategy? I mean, I love doing strategy work and uh, mine comes just, the only reason they'll talk to me is they're like, oh, that guy's built what I want to build. And, and, and they don't even know that I'm going to teach strategy. I, they don't hire me for that. They hire me because they want to you know, either A, I'm giving them money, I'm growing their business or B, they, they want to build a big company. And they're like, oh, Darius has been there and done that. I want to bring him in. What, like, how did you get into strategy? Like what, what's, did you go to school for that? Did you like start off as an advisor, then go to school? Like give us some of that background. Yeah, absolutely. So my PhD is actually in international economics. And when I was doing my PhD, I was really focused on organizational performance. And I was working with a lot of things on public private partnerships, and wanted to kind of understand what caused organizations to perform and do better than others. And I think like many things, Darius, I never intended to be a business school professor, I never intended to run my own consulting firm, I just happened to kind of opportunities kept opening, I kept kind of zigging and zagging on what the original plan was, and now just kind of fell into something I've been doing 
for almost 15 years and still love passionately. That's cool. And so um, how, how did you end up uh, deciding to go to the UK? You, you, did you do you did undergrad here in the States? Is that correct? I did. I had that was in no way on the plan was to go to the UK. So I actually grew up in Michigan and Indiana. So I'm a Midwest girl straight through. And when I was in middle school, high school, could not wait to get out of Indiana. Right. So I had all of these plans to go to these other schools, got accepted into all of them. And then IU offered me a really great full ride scholarship. So four years fully paid and I could spend two semesters anywhere in the world that I wanted to. So I took that, went to IU, got to live in Australia, got to live in the Netherlands, got to do super cool internships because I wasn't worried about paying for school. And then I was going to actually go to either McKinsey, Bain or Goldman Sachs. So I was sitting there my senior year of university deciding between these three great firms. And my university nominated me for the Rhodes Scholarship and the Marshall Scholarship. So I ended up winning a Marshall Scholarship and there's around 30 in the country. Moved over to the UK to do two years of a master's degree. After my first year in the master's, got directly accepted to the PhD program at LSE. Was still actually trying to move back to the US because I wanted to get back to work. And luckily had a really good buddy who was like, are you crazy? You're getting a fully paid for PhD from LSE. You're going to stay and you're going to do this and you can put off going back to be a consultant for another couple of years. Best advice I've probably gotten among any other set. So stayed at the LSE. When I was there, Darius got super lucky that my first year at LSE, the London School of Economics was actually partnering with McKinsey, the consulting firm, Mm. to do a study on organizational performance. And it was one of those funny things. One of my professors was like, hey, you know consulting, right? I was like, yeah. Like, and you know economics, right? Yeah. Well, like, I think you should apply to be part of this program. Did it, became the global director the year later and got to train teams all around the world. And what we were doing is they're trying to understand if better managed firms were more productive. And you think, well, why even do a study like that? Of course they are. Well, no one had ever proven it, right? Do all of these things we talk about, like performance tracking and talent management, does not matter for performance? And so we built this multi-year, multi-country study, trained MBAs to interview plant managers all around the world. And turns out it really matters. Like statistically significantly, plant managers and manufacturing firms that know how to manage their teams outperform everyone else. Now, the timing matters. This was 2008. Right. So going into the great financial crisis and we have some really powerful information for governments like, hey, we've got this low capital investment way that you can boost national GDP. Like, let's just give, you know, your plant managers and managers some basic management training. So while I was doing my Ph.D., I got to run this global McKinsey LSE project for four or five years, did that, loved it. And then when I finished, didn't want to go back to a consulting firm, loved doing my own thing, had a great colleague at LBS who asked me to join them for six months as usually happens when you say yes to a couple month gig, and I'm sure this has happened to you too, six months became over 10 years, right? So teaching an executive program at LBS, and my first program there was a YPO program. So when Mm. I was only like 27, 28, got to teach on a YPO program, there was instant fit. I loved working with entrepreneurs. I loved them who were just solely focused on value creation. So fell into it, said I would do consulting and teaching until it stopped working. And it's many, many years later and it's still working. And I just, got, you know, fell into something that I absolutely love doing. That's so cool. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stopped me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose 
itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklyn and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. So, um, I'm, um, forgive me, but so is Marshall, the Marshall scholarship, like, like, like the same Marshall as like the Marshall plan person. Yeah. So the Marshall scholarship was started after world war II as a way to foster better relationships between the UK and the U S and what happens is at that time, they're around 30. There's a little bit more now universities nominate one person. You go through a very, very intense multi-interview regional and the national interview process. And then 30, you know, university seniors are granted two years in the UK. So you get to choose your university. You get two years in the UK, fully paid for, two master's degrees or the start of a PhD. And it was started again in this effort to kind of continuing these relationships between, you know, U.S. professionals and U.K. professionals. And so not only did I have that great experience, but I now have a peer group, you know, of other Marshall scholars who are doing the most incredible things, not just in the U.S. and U.K., but all around the world as well. That's cool. And so when you start to look at like the like coming out of that, and and it, and it, I just want to make sure I picked up what you put down yeah. when you were working with doing the PPP project mm -hmm. through McKinsey. Mm -hmm. Was the takeaway essentially what I heard you say is like, yeah, we we with these plant managers of these like large, probably like multinational mm -hmm. corporations, mm -hmm. basically teaching them like soft skills 
Is it, yeah. was I, am I picking up on what you just said? Yes. So, so what we did, and it was really cool, and apologize by geek out and survey methodology, but what we were trying to understand was really what was going on. And we built this, you know, 20 so question interview grid, which was just a conversation. And it asked you things about how do you track performance and do you set targets and how do you manage people and give kind of performing employee reviews, looking at performance management and talent management and kind of operational management. And then we trained MBA students and they would call up plant managers in their country of origin. So a Brazilian MBA student would call plants in Brazil and an Irish MBA student would call plants in Ireland. And of course, these plant managers were so happy to speak to someone from their country who was doing their MBA in the UK. And we would interview them, kind of score them on this rubric. And yes, those would implement these, you know, not just soft skills, but also some basic goal tracking and goal setting. And then we would kind of pull the actual performance numbers and the results were just dramatic, right? And then we kept adding more and more countries to the study and the results kept proving. So it was agnostic of industry. It was agnostic of size of the company that having these basic management and leadership tools in place allowed companies to be more productive. And that's how I got into strategy was this methodology really interested a colleague of mine at the London Business School who said, hey, like, I would actually love to know if this applies to strategy execution. Like, you know, are there things you could have in place to execute strategy that if you have them in place, we feel better that you're going to be able to do strategy. So we did something similar for execution. And I thought I'd be focusing on strategy execution, right? I'm about performance. I'm about results and goals. And in doing so, and I'm sure this echoes from your own experience, you realize that you can't have a great discussion about execution if you don't have a solid strategy for growth, right? A lot of strategies are just you know, long, long PowerPoint decks or three vague mindless goals on the wall. And so I kept having to go back in the value chain to really be able to draw on the thing that I knew would matter for performance. And that's how I ended up in strategy was, you know, where I wanted to start, I had to kept going back because that was the route, you know, lacking that clear strategy for growth, you know, you're not having a great conversation about the metrics and everything else you need to at the end of the value chain. What is, so if, and I have my own thoughts around this. So, so just so the audience is clear, like what are the size of, of companies were you doing this with? Was it like these are large companies or they're mid-market companies? What was If you had to kind of give a generalization, what would you say? Yeah, so back when I was at LSE, it was mixed from kind of tens of millions to hundreds of millions to some of the multi-billion dollar organizations. Okay, so these are mid-market, yeah. lower mid-market companies. Sounds Absolutely. like yeah. maybe at, at most was some small small big companies right mm-hmm. if you're in the billions yeah. but 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 if you're in the tens of millions or hundreds, hundreds of millions that's like like my business was a couple hundred million bucks and mm-hmm. we had you know so I, I would consider us lower lower mid market yeah um and and even the businesses that we're making investments in now are like tens of millions mm-hmm. uh, for the most part and so um you know when you look at companies like that those are smaller companies like you know people they don't feel like that if they're the entrepreneur or the ceo but that's that's a small small business i yeah. think a micro, micro caps like under a billion in in, in revenue right mm-hmm. um for the stock market so when you start to think of like what was the number one thing that you when you mm-hmm. you know if you had to, to like had to pick one thing where you're like hey mm-hmm. this is why they're not succeeding what would that one thing be? Yeah, so let's kind of pivot from kind of what I was doing during my PhD to kind of now, right? And then I think it's difficult. So now I work with companies between a couple hundred million to a couple of billion. So it still tends to be smaller. I work with many who are in the kind of the 15, 20 plus billion. But my sweet spot, I love taking companies on journeys from kind of four or 500 million to a billion or two. So that tends to be the majority of it. But I will work with some smaller and I will work with one bigger. You know, 
I know this is going to sound silly, Darius, but a lot of times it's, are you actually aligned as a leadership or management team on what performance mm. or growth is? Like you maybe wouldn't be surprised, but how many times the executive and leadership teams are not just completely misaligned about what they should be doing, but where they should be going, right? Because again, we articulate performance in some vague notions of leading the market or being customer centric or engaging our employees, but not actually aligning and saying, yeah, in three years time, this is where we want to be. In another three years, we want to be here and then kind of setting the right execution pathway to go towards that finish line. Yeah. So what I just heard you say is basically being clear on where you're going, doing it in mm -hmm. timeframes that are manageable. So not picking some mm -hmm. like 10 year BHAG that's like so far out in the future that you can't really you know figure out how to get there. And then yeah. reverse engineering that to like action steps today to then hold people accountable to it. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure you, you saw our listeners want me roll my eyes a bit at BHAG. Like BHAGs, they're just, they don't work, right? And they don't work for lots of reasons. Like I love ambitious goals. I know you love ambitious goals. But the problem with BHAGs and for our audience, they stand for big, hairy, audacious goals is that all of your employees know they're not possible, right? And occasionally, and there's very few exceptions, like Mark Benioff at Salesforce has consistently been able to set these things and people work to them. I don't really have many other examples of those that can, is that when you give your employees a BHAG, they know it's not possible. So they recalibrate and they set their own goals. And so all of your key leaders around the organization, likely around the world, are actually working towards a different goal because they're all recalibrating what they think their boss really wants, which means their actions are now misaligned as well. So I like to say like the math has to work. You know, the math mm -hmm. can be pushing. The math can and should demand that we work in different ways, but the math has to work. And then once you have that finish line, it's just the anchoring notion of a finish line like running a marathon. Now I can actually align my right activities to get there. So that's the big one. And I'm going to go in and throw the second one in too, because this is just becoming so obvious over the last couple of years, is it's not just that we're misaligned on the finish line. You're misaligned on your beliefs is that all the choices we make in organizations are based on beliefs, right? And for most organizations, those beliefs are implicit. Like we all kind of have them, but we don't actually voice them and discuss them. And what really, really sets these high performing organizations apart is that they align on beliefs. And then as they're executing, they start testing these beliefs while they're executing their priorities. And why this is so important is that you're gonna get feedback on whether or not your beliefs are valid long before you get feedback on whether or not your priorities are being executed towards the right results. So aligning on a finish line and then articulating and testing your beliefs, those are the two big things that really make a difference. Oh my gosh, you're speaking my language. You, you know I wrote a book called The Core Value Equation, which is around I did, how to actually, build a core. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. It's how do you <laughs> operationalize your values in a business? I did my homework, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, are you messing with me? Um, so no, yeah, no. I, I'm like, literally, I'm like, like yep, I agree. Um, <laughs> I agree so much, I wrote a book about it. Um, yeah, it's, it's so, I do have one, like, I'll, I'll counter you on one point, point. And, and, and this is just my perspective. I I, every, I I agree with everything you just said. The only thing I would say is I think that people, first of all, I think that HR departments weaponize a lot of these things to try to build qualitative soft skill stuff that like without having an end in mind. And they'll say like, oh, it's just like they want to do it. It's fun. It's nice. Um, and, and so the BHAG, I think a lot of people get it wrong in that they make that the goal instead of making it like something to aspire to. Right. Yes. And so like I, I used to be hacking my last company. So, but I, but I used it as the way I just described it, which is like, this, this is like something so crazy, 
let's fight to try to build something that would be cool enough to, to that could actually do that. Oh, and by the way, here's the plan for the next 12 weeks. Go do it. And it lines up to the next one year, which lines up to the next three years, which lines up to that bigger thing. Right. And you just had the most critical yes and in there, right? Because of course, you're not allowed to say yes, but in organizations is yes. And because sometimes you need to throw something out there to signify the mind step, you know, but not the mind share, but the kind of the step in ambition, right? So you know, numbers or something matters because we've got to signal to the team, this is the the step, right, that we have to go through. And most people are linear thinkers, right? And this is a big disconnect between entrepreneurs who run companies and the people who work for them. As entrepreneurs think in leaps, most people think in lines, right? And so when you set something out there, that's a leap without the clarity of, you know, we probably won't get there. Here's the plan to kind of get 80% of the way there. And then here's what we're looking out for along the way to open new opportunities. But you've got to close that gap. It's like, yes, here's the mindset shift, right? To saying this is what mm -hmm. the future is, but also you've got to help the people out, right? Who are part of your team to kind of see some of the steps to get there. You don't need to build it out step by step. And as a leader, you should not be determining, right? The micro steps and activities your team is taking, but people need to be able to kind of, I think like close the loops in the lines, right? So you're thinking in the leaps, but we've got to give some lines for people to understand where we're going. Yeah, I love that. I, the way I thought about it, as a, so I'll tell you what my BHAG was and which will align to what you just said. Ours was, uh, mind you, I, I, I built this company. There was a couple dozen of us when we started and very quickly grew to, you know, about a thousand people. Um, this is a business that had, I think, origin had, I don't know, helped maybe a few thousand customers over its two decades that had been in existence at that point. It was a very small company when I got there that had been around for a while. Um, and I and I partnered with it, and we ended up own, owning it with the original owner, um, who was my business partner. And I said, "Hey, I want to build a company that can help one million humans, home, homeowners, gain and retain home home ownership." Now, mind you, the number at that point was a couple thousand. So to say mm -hmm. a million is like it's an absurd number. Yeah. But my thought process around that, I'd love to get your feedback on this. Was like, mm -hmm. who would we have to be for that to be true? Right. So who do, yeah. what would what would we have to be? How what, like we'd have to create something so meaningful that that would mm -hmm. to create that kind of outcome that I have no idea how we're going to do it. By the way, yeah. But that's just but I'm planting this that like flag in the sand just to say like start thinking like again to be inspirational again to set vision. But it was really the question was who do we have to be for that to be true? So mm -hmm. again, like there's no real clear answer. Like you you could start to describe what that might look like. But like, if you're like 13 people when you're saying that, it's again, it's yeah. an absurd statement. Now you'll uh, you'll appreciate this. Yeah. It took nine years. It was a 10 year goal, and we did it in nine years, mm -hmm. right? Okay. But but there was no like plan. You couldn't plan for that because it's like mm -hmm. it was so far away from reality. So how do you feel about doing something like that? Again, going back to this framework that you're describing around like yeah, giving people some action steps of what does the next 12 months yeah. need to look like in order to even like start to like build a trajectory that points in that direction. Absolutely. And, and look, real breakthrough growth will only come from some of that thinking, right? Breakthrough growth is not linear, right? And this is the tension that we're trying to break inside organizations is linear planning does not get you right to the breakthrough growth. So Darius, the simplest way I like to explain is to split between a destination and a direction, right? Mm. Most of us want destinations and that's like the finish line. That's like when you're, you know, you're driving and you're, you're driving from SF to Los Angeles. You're like, I'm going to take exit 405 for Santa Monica. Like that's the destination. I'm telling you exactly exactly when to get off the highway and where to go. But a direction is more saying we're going Northwest. Like 
I don't know if that's going to be Seattle. I don't know if that's Vancouver. I don't know if we're going to stop kind of in Nevada. I know we're going Northwest. As your leader, I'm taking us Northwest, right? So you can start aligning action. And, but you're, so you're not promising the end state destination. And that goes back to this uncertainty volatility that we're facing. I explicitly don't want people to set very clear, precise destinations for 10 years down the road. Too much is going to change. And I don't want you heads down. I want you heads up, right? So directions, right, that you start preparing for, and then you set these incremental destinations for the timeframe that's appropriate, right? And so strategy is about three years as a sweet spot. Sometimes it's a three-year destination and I can only set destinations on the one year. You know, in situations like post-COVID 2020, post-Brexit 2016, all of the ones that you and I have lived through, destinations were only appropriate for, you know, four to six weeks at a time. Like that's also okay, but language matters. And we've got to tell our team, this is the destination. And the only direction I can give you is X. And the reason, and you felt this, you're living this, you're going to live it over the next year with interest rates, right? Is that the more uncertainty your team is facing, the more we beg our leaders for alignment, right? The more uncertainty your team knows you're in, the Mm. more we look to our leadership team to say, tell me what to do. And that's exactly the time we can't as leaders tell them what to do. So that's why I like to go my destination direction, give them comfort. And if we use a really bad paraphrased U.S. history example, you know, if the gold diggers in the 1800s had headed towards Los Angeles, they would have missed the gold, right? All they were doing was heading Northwest and looking for the opportunities that came up along the way. I love that. What um, you said something a moment ago that it, what's interesting is I've 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 been brought up in some of these mid market, lower mid market like scale operating systems. I don't know if you're familiar with like Traction or EOS or Scaling yep. Up, but there's a there's a bunch of them, right? Three Hag, mm-hmm. and so I grew up on those systems and implemented them. I even created my own system, um, just because I got I geeked out on that stuff pretty hard and was like, yeah. re- really, it was just out of pain, right? Like when mm-hmm. you're growing a company from zero to a hundred people like there's mm-hmm. no with no background in this stuff or even if you do have background in this stuff like to actually do it's one thing than to just know it you know um we used to look out we say hey this is my 10-year goal this is my five-year goal my mm-hmm. business partner and i were talking about this um in our new business because we're like look like the world's changing so fast right now i can't look out f- three years is a lifetime away and so for yeah. us, we, we'll like our we won't go past three years. We're like one year, three mm-hmm. year, and like that we're done because anything beyond that, it's too much. Like, and and I will say this: ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, I didn't, I wouldn't have said that. Now I didn't know what I do now, and maybe the world was moving as quickly as mm-hmm. it is now. I don't feel like it is. I feel like the move, world's working moving a lot faster now than it was fifteen years ago. So I feel like three years is about as far as I'm willing to lean in the future. How do you feel about like, A, the velocity of change that's happening right now? And B, is the three year, and I get what you're saying, during a COVID or something like that, it's like, let's Hmm. take it day by day, week by week. Yeah. But barring some exceptional, like, you know, COVID, you know, just Mm -hmm. in general, is three years like the new five year? Like, tell me about that. Yeah. Three years is absolutely the sweet spot. I when I think of strategy, it's three years. Now I like to think in terms of strategy cycles, right? So if you're a newer company, you know, less than a year or two old, less than kind of 10 million in revenue, you should not be thinking at more than three years, right? It's a waste. Honestly, it's a waste of your time to build a 10 year plan or vision. I know some of my colleagues disagree with that, but three years is your sweet spot for existing organizations. They'll argue, well, you know, our asset investment cycles are 10 years or, you know, this so-and-so is X. It's like, okay, well think in terms of cycles, one cycle, three years, two cycles, six years. And you want the more clarity there. But three years is absolutely the value creation sweet spot. More than that, you're not actually having enough clarity of what you're doing to make a difference. Less than a year, it's a business plan 
right? And if you're just doing one-year business plans, you're not going to get to growth. So people will argue, well, three years is too long. I'm just going to do one-year plans. It tends to, you end up downshifting so much. Now, people with your mindset might be a bit different, Darius, but we're talking the general kind of entrepreneurs running companies. One-year plans, you don't tend to focus on the things which really move the needle, right? And so that's why three years is absolutely my sweet spot. So I say two to three years, most companies, three years, younger ones, kind of two years. Now, on the uncertainty element, great question. Now, there's no answer, right? Because we all probably disagree. But I challenge entrepreneurs with this a lot because people will say, you know, we use the term VUCA for volatile, you know, complex, ambiguous, et cetera. Right? We talk about the all of this uncertainty. And I've had people say to me, you know, have we ever run a company during certainty? And so I'm challenging every entrepreneur now. Okay, tell me when you ran your business through certainty. And the consistent feedback I get back, and I'd love your thoughts on it, is yes, you know, especially for those who started tech investing in 2000. It's always been uncertainty but we always had macro conditions as relatively stable, right? Now we have market uncertainty, we have industry uncertainty, and we have geopolitical uncertainty, right? Let alone some of the social changes uncertainty. And so what I'm hearing from entrepreneurs is, I hear you, right? Things have always been uncertain. There's never been a certain pathway to running a business, but my level of geopolitical uncertainty is now adding something else to the mix, which is affecting how I think about it. Yeah, I I mean, I feel like, again, my my framing is different because I'm 45 years old. So 20 years ago, I was 25 years old. So I didn't, didn't you know, I, I wasn't building a company on the same, like, like I wasn't building businesses on the same foundation, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or with the same goals or with the same experience. Um, and I think that, I think what was different then was you were, it was a more of an analog world. Yes. Um, and less access to information. It was more expensive to do things. It was more expensive for information. Um, things came to the market slower because of just the the nature of analog information mm-hmm. dissemination. Right. And so I feel like things were just slower for that reason. I mean, I, I had, you know, just to put in a context, like you know, what, 20 years ago, people were still getting faxes. Okay. Like my, some of my listeners may not even know what I that mean, if even you're in means. A healthcare, if you're in a healthcare startup, you're still sending fax. Yeah. Which is, which is the only so way that weird. The yeah. I've got several <laughs> friends running companies in that space. So yes, to our listeners, a fax machine was something that you would scan a document and it would send it to someone else's office and print off like a printer. So basically two yeah. printers hooked up electronically and it would take quite a while back in the day to send those things. I know. was very hip and forward. And so I had a uh-huh. fax computer that it took the faxes Ooh. into. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I've You're always a cool been, kid in the office. Yeah, I've always been cutting edge, um, you know. <laughs> but um, so yeah, like that's the world. So I think the world was just slower. Yes, and- but think of what it took to start a company then, right? In terms of server cost or coding cost or software development cost, the ability to raise money. You had to get it's on harder. planes. Like we didn't have virtual kind of all of this stuff. People can raise their entire round simply through Zoom and Teams calls now, right? And that's only the advent of the last couple of years. So look, the exciting thing is that this means our feedback loops are just an order of magnitude different. So, you know, in CS, you're facing more uncertainty now as an entrepreneur, but can you really argue there's not been a greater time to start a business when it turns to startup costs and velocity of feedback loops and ability to build a team from all over the world. Like this should be one of the most exciting times that we can remember in our lifetime to embrace in order to build a business. Oh yeah, no, no. I that that's what that's the other thing I was telling people. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, it's never been easier or cheaper to start a business and or stop a business, right? To your point, yeah. the feedback loop tells you you're wrong, you just turn it off, right? In yeah. the past you'd be so pot invested. You're like, I can't turn this off. Like 
I'm like, my whole life savings is in this because it costs a hundred grand to start a business. You know, I have to get an office. Mm-hmm. I have to get a fax machine. <laughs> I have to get computers. I have to, you know, like I have to go a find server talent. room. Do you remember the server, server rooms? Room. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yes. I had yeah. server rooms. Yeah. So yeah. So the, I think that's that, that I would tell you is, is the positive, but I do think that you get it because of those quicker food feedback loops. It means change happens faster. It means so much there's faster. more so competitors faster. because the, the barrier to entry for most businesses mm-hmm. is much, much lower. Right. Yeah. You can like, dude, there's companies out there that you probably know of that are like venture studios that literally the only thing they do is test ideas before. And then as they get information yeah. that tells that solidifies their idea, they, they then invest more in that idea. Right. And they're literally just just testing if an idea exactly. even works. Right. You could never do that in the past. So I, th- I what I'm saying is I'm mm-hmm. doubling down on the world is moving faster because of that. And it makes it harder for a lot of people to run a business because they can get disrupted easier. Their competition yes. can come in easier than it could in the past. The moat is thinner than it ever was in a lot of areas for this reason. And layer on top of that, to your point, we have social differences that are, are exacerbated mm-hmm. right now, political differences that are exacerbated right now. You have market volatility that's reacting to all that. And you have geopolitical issues that's mm-hmm. reacting that's reacting to all this. Mm-hmm. Plus, the market's reacting to that, which yes, are then yes. causing our businesses to react to that, right? Mm-hmm. You add all that together and I go, man, the only thing, I swear to God, I, I was talking to a friend of mine. I'm like, man, is there a way for me to make money on just investing in the VIX? Like, I'm just going to load up on the VIX because I know. And I looked, I was trying to figure it out. How can I make more money on the VIX? And it was like, yes. they're, they're, you couldn't do it, right? Mm-hmm. I, I do the research on how to buy VIX contracts. And I was like, the only thing I'm certain of is that there's going to be a lot more uncertainty. And so if that's the, so, so you wrote a book about this. How do we, how do we like, let's talk about the book. Let's So the book is survive, reset and thrive. It's all around how to thrive amongst this uncertainty. Give us some of the premise and then give us some of the answers. So the premise is growth is a loop, not a line. And by that, I mean that it goes partly to the kind of the fixed mindset versus growth mindset is that once we're thriving and performing and it goes back to what we're talking about as far as the volatility of change right now, we assume we're always going to stay thriving and performing. And we get these market shocks, but we become so committed to the pathway we're on. We assume, I call it the, you know, I'll just wait this out, right? Or the, I can get through this. And you've got to be willing to say it's going to be a loop. And that loop is the survive phase, the reset phase, and the thrive phase. Like you're going to get system shocks. Now, sometimes those are macro. You know, like COVID, like Brexit, like war, they're often internal, losing a major customer contract, you know, an investor not coming through. That's a shock too. You've got to be able to stabilize your business. And then the hard part is the reset. And that's for change. You've mentioned change a couple of times. And what makes it so hard is that we really don't like to change what we're doing when we feel we're on a pathway. But after you survive, you've got to go through the reset and be prepared to change your strategy And then you can get back to the thrive, being that consistently high performing organization. Now, the challenges I'm going to repeat purposely is it's a loop, not a line. So you can be in thrive and have to go back to survive, right? You know, competitors catch up. The moat, as you mentioned, are thin. You've got AI disruption in your space. And if you're prepared to kind of cycle through that loop, you can outgrow anything. And part of the power move is building what I call this proactive survive. So you're setting your business up so it's always stabilized. Now, that's not running too lean. You've got to deploy cash for growth options, but 
are your fixed costs low? Are your customer moats as strong as they can be? Do you have clear lines of communication? Do you have a strong cash runway? And when you do that, Darius, you've got less to do and survive while everyone else is catching up. The reset becomes your power move. Like, are you prepared to change? And then you can go back to that thrive. So that's the secret, right? Now there's little bits of secrets within it, but why most companies struggle is the reset part. And and we do this to them. Like think of all the conferences in 2021 where the title was, don't just survive, thrive, or you've got to survive to thrive, or now that you've survived, thrive. And 99% of the time, when you see these two words, you don't see the critical word in the middle, which is reset or change. And wow, are people afraid of the word reset? Like I can't tell you how many times a week someone says to me, we definitely want to go through this. But can we not use the word reset? Because my team will get scared if we use the word reset. Can we use the term revisit or relook at or, you know, glance through once again, right? And I'm not making these up because we don't want to use the word reset. But there's some power in saying as a leader, every year we're going to look through this. And when there's a shock, every time. And we're going to reset if we need to, to be a better thriving organization on the other side. That's a, a, a glance through on, what did you say? Glance through? Like, glance through. Ev- everything you can imagine <laughs> is trying to come up with a synonym for the word reset that yeah. doesn't mean change. Yes. You're going to yes. scare my people. You have to pick some ambiguous synonyms. Um, <laughs> that's that's really funny. Um, <laughs> also, because the, the team's always worried about things that, that they shouldn't be worried about anyway, which is yeah. oh, probably another thing. Um, so, yeah, I wrote a couple of things down and you, you, you touched on one of them, which is this idea of like, like really stabilizing the business right and but doing this like proactive survive surviving um so i i look you're talking you're like again you're speaking my language uh, having come from an interest rate volatile business like mortgage lending mortgage servicing by the way is probably one of the, it's like oil and gas and like anything that's interest rate driven mm-hmm. is our businesses that like go have fun in them because i lived 20 plus years in the interest rate environment and that that's a gnarly business well, it's as gnarly as the interest rates are, which are pretty gnarly, right? Yeah. If you look at just, I'll give you two time frames. It's just for our listeners who are like, what's Darius talking about? I'm like, yeah, it's real simple. In 2021, you were getting home mortgages at 2% and those are at 8% right now. You know, by the way, if you go back to 2016, they were at 2% and then they went up to 5 or 6% and then they went back down to 2%. Like that's like over 100% change in interest rate movement in three years. You know, yeah. so, so, and, and, and we just had a 250% increase the other way. I'm not, I got out of the business. So I was like, oh, I'm over this, man. This, this is, we were talking about, you know, having like principles and beliefs in the business. I had a firm belief that, in, that I was like, I don't think my belief system is aligned to a business that you have to run on, on the axis of this type of, of volatility because you end up having mm-hmm. to like scale up and scale down really fast. So it's hard. Like if you're a relationship person, that's painful. You're like painful. hiring yeah. and firing very quickly and you have to, mm-hmm. you're not given a choice. So, you know, I think that's a really good example. I'll use myself again. I think I'm a really good example of someone that had to get into that, you know, survival productivity mode, which was like, hey, we're always looking. So what I did with that, and I'd love your thoughts on this, Rebecca, mm-hmm. I was like, hey, we're always running lean-ish unless we see that there's a market opportunity coming and then we're going to lean in as hard as we can because... Mm-hmm. We're in an we're in a volatile cyclical business that like when it gives it gives and when it takes away it takes away and the minute we start to see it go the other way so it went the other way when Trump got elected in our business Brexit rates got cut Trump gets elected rates spike and then mm-hmm. then he he was the whole bag of gosh 
he was really not fun for interest rates because he was like all over the place. Start a yeah. trade war, rates go down. You know, COVID rates rates go up, then down. And so when you're in a business like that, you're always cutting and adding and leaning in and you have to be like super agile. And I, mm-hmm. and I always used to joke, I'm like, I have like muscles that most entrepreneurs don't have. Yeah. Most businesses are not that extreme. I know a lot of entrepreneurs, most are not affected by, by macro cycles in that way. Uh, or or microcycles in that way. So my question for you is using that as an example of an extreme business, but looking at a more normal business, because I think most mm-hmm. businesses are a little bit more normal yeah. than that, where, they're, they're, where the, the volatility is not as extreme. What is it that like when they're starting to build these muscles, like how do you recommend they do that? Because I, I know how I yeah. did it. Mine was, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention. It yeah. was like, oh, go yeah. out of business yeah. or do it, you know, but, <laughs> but most people aren't going to have that extreme of, of, of a cycle. How did, how, no. do you, how should they think about that, that yeah, muscles? A- absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Interesting. I was with um, 300 CEOs in the construction and real estate industry net last week. So you're, you're, that is very much top of mind how to do that. But the notion is when you keep swinging back and forth, you never really build capability in either, right? You're never really, I mean, you can see the democratic you, not the you, Darius, you know, you're never really great at, you know, performing during lean times. You're never really great at kind of growing through kind of um, frothy times. And so there's this power in being proactively stabilized, right? And so that way you're actually building capability. But, you know, markets can be very volatile. Yours, you know, in one of those extreme volatility cases. But when you're constantly swinging, right, where's your capability building? And so I call it proactive, no, I call it steady state survive, right? Now, leanish is exactly how I call it, right? We're in the same mindset here. I don't want anyone running overly lean because if you're sitting on too much cash, you're not deploying it to the right way. But you need to set the metrics for, I call them the four C's for cash, cost, customers, communication. And you agree as a leadership team, where's our minimum boundaries? Like where's the lowest, even in the best of times, we should fall on these, right? And it's tempting to break those when times are good because when times are good, our brains reframe the environment at times will always stay good. And we know, even if we know deep down, they're going to swing. So you set your boundaries across your four C's of the cash, cost, customers, and communication and never violate those boundaries. And that way, when the market kind of gives you, right, the headwinds versus the tailwinds, you've still got that base to rely on. You then go into your more stronger survive moods, which also employ some of the power moves, doing things like repurposing and partnering. So what assets can you reutilize? Like how can you do even more for learning velocity, which want to come back to learning and then go the other way. So you build the muscle by doing it proactively. Like I explicitly don't do recession proofing workshops because, you know, if and when a recession comes, you should already be set up, right, to survive through it and get out of it faster than everyone else. Like you and I can't stop the market from punching people. We can't stop this interest rate swings. If we can influence the Fed, I'm sure we would try to, right? But we can help build businesses that are better at taking these swings than everyone else. So proactive survive, then be prepared to change, right? But agility and change without strategy is chaos, right? A lot of times entrepreneurs will say, well, you know, we don't need a strategy. Things are changing so much. We're just going to be more agile. It's like, like, cool. Like I, I love the mindset, but the definition of agility means making good decisions quickly aligned with strategy. Agility without strategy has a definition. It's called chaos, right? And so you need this alignment at all times, even though it goes back to our earlier conversation, it's a direction versus not a destination. But you've got to build the muscles, just like working out in the gym. If you constantly let your organization swing, you have not gotten great at either things, right? So others are going to do better in frothy times and others are going to do better in lean times. 
What do you, so what do you think? And, and I love what you said because that, I, I, like I said, it, like, man, I, I should have just been like sitting next to you the last 20 years. Cause you're, whatever you're saying is like, it's like, that's how I think about it. Um, but one of the things that I got really clear on, which, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on was like, okay, look, I'm in the volatile business. I can't control the markets. What can I control? And so I was like, here are the things I can control to your point, cash. I can control making mm-hmm. sure I run lean in the right departments mm-hmm. and, and investable in the ones I, I can invest in. I make sure I'm constantly looking for creating efficiencies in the business. Um, I'm looking to outsource where I can because the, I can have a little bit more flexibility as far as moving like capacity around in, in the business that way. Um, but the, one of the biggest things that I did, especially in, 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 Lending in the origination business, it's it's very uh, top heavy as far as how you make revenue because you make your revenue mm-hmm. per transaction, right? Construction yeah. business would be the same. Um, construction business is different than that you have a long like lead time because you got to go and very you know, long lead time, right? Yeah. So there's a, so you so it's real sketchy, right? Then and 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 not, for listeners who know what I'm talking about, like they, they do land banking, they get super like creative on how they do these construction developments over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a lot about that as I started investing in the space. I'm like, oh, this is really like they're smart. There's a lot of like smart people figuring this out. But the one thing that I was going to ask was, how do you when when you know and maybe views of construction is a good example. How do you like plan? For let's use the example of a construction build out where I'm building a big project that takes three to five years or five to seven years, but I'm building it on top of this uncertainty. You know, mm-hmm. how does one start to build a strategy for a longer term? Because I started to struggle with it. I'm like, man, I can't set goals yeah. for 12 months from now because there's so much out of my control. I can set goals for like projects within a quarter, but like I don't know what's going to happen with the interest rates and that affects too much of my, my business. So I got really just focused within, you know, I would set goals for the year knowing that they might move around and got really focused on projects that I thought would move the needle to that eventually. Yeah. But when we look, and, and again, my business is a different business, but looking at, let's mm-hmm. say, a construction business where you have five years to do a project, I got to go get land, entitle the land, do all these things, and then I got to build it and it's huge capital expenditure. How does mm-hmm. someone get comfortable with that type of investment knowing that there's so much volatility, so much change, so many things out of their control? How do you, how, how, yeah. how do you think about it? I'm going to answer the cliche one first and I'll go into details. You got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Is that when you force comfortability or you force quantification on things which are inherently not comfortable or not quantifiable, you do yourself a big disservice, right? Because then you trick your brain into thinking things are stable and predictable because I put a firm plan around them. I have numbers and that's actually a trap, right? So sometimes leaders think they're doing their organization a service, right? By setting these very clear goals and building all these quantifiable plans, but you are inherently not an environment where you can do so. So you've got to shift from planning to preparing, right? And so preparing, you're making decisions based on beliefs. So at every decision point, you're saying, let's align on beliefs. What are our beliefs? Our beliefs when we started this project were X around interest rates, Y around regulation, you know, Z around the stability of our partners. Do we still take those beliefs? So, you know, you're constantly parallel pathing, Darius, not just executing, but stress testing your beliefs. And this is not a skill set held by very many, which is why there's so few high performing you know, companies in industries that are that volatile is your beliefs form your choices. Your beliefs can be and should be tested. And that parallel path is critical. The next is that parallel pathing of planning and preparing plan for only what you can and no more. Like we're not throwing away planning, right? But we're only planning when a linear model can tell us what happens next plan. When there's facts are reliable, 
plan. When that is not the case, you've got to make decisions based on beliefs, not facts. Now, this is a scary statement, right? But you've got to learn how to set beliefs, make choices based on those, and then test those along the way. And when it comes to the goals, kind of really separating between what's an output goal, like my team members completing an activity or project, you know, RFP is turned in, contract is signed, et cetera, versus what's an outcome, right? Or an actual metric. And you've got to kind of build that back in. And then finally, Darius, I'm always looking for my favorite type of move is called a no regret move, right? And a no regret move is one that even if we got our beliefs wrong, we would not regret making this move. And I find it very helpful, especially in industries like this, mm. to constantly stop and say, what no regret moves do we have on the table now? There's always more than you think, right? And really forcing the mindset of, you know, this move is based on our beliefs and we have not affirmed those beliefs. Let's pause versus this is a no regret move. We could get this belief wrong and this would still be the right move to take. And adding that discipline into the decision-making process makes a lot of a difference. So w- when you look at First of all, like anyone that's just listening right now, like you may want to like replay that. Put it number one. Don't listen to this at one and a half speed because Rebecca talks fast and so do I. Uh, so <laughs> make sure you put that at like a point eight and go pick up your pen and paper and take notes because that was like knowledge bombs that she just dropped. Um, and I and I mean I'm like I'm a person. I'm a student of the game, and I have not heard someone explain it that way before. So that was awesome. But you know, my, my question, yeah, I really ap- appreciate what you just said. So I have I have two other questions, and I, unfortunately, we're running out of time here. So I'm gonna do you mind? Can you run over for like ten or fifteen or ten more minutes? Are you good? Yeah, I got ten more. Yeah, cool. I, I think I booked this for that time, but I always pat it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, so my question for you is this: like, two questions. Number one is we're talking about organizations that are elite organizations and people can, you know, aspire to become these elite organizations. I'm telling you like a lot of the stuff you're describing, I ended up doing just again out of like necessity to, to, to be successful. Yeah. And, and, and mm-hmm. in, in what I would argue less volatile times, but now I feel like the world's caught up. It's volatile mm-hmm. for everybody. Change is happening. AI is here, the markets, the geopolitical, all these things we talked about. So if change is the only thing that's constant, and people want to start somewhere so that they can start to build a more, you know, flexible organization that has mm-hmm. this muscle memory so that they can be an athlete in this environment, not a victim to it. Where do they start? You start with your beliefs, right? And really sitting down with your team and what's at first going to feel like a, a meandering conversation. It's not right. And say, what do we believe? What do we believe around kind of macro trends, right? What do we, you know, interest rates, inflation, you know, political trends, what regulation is going to impact our space, social trends, hybrid working, people moving, demands of employees, industry trends, consolidation versus fragmentation, new entrants. And really, what are our beliefs? Identify those top trends. What most people do, Darius, is they spend a lot of time talking about trends. And then our brain associates a trend as a risk. And I see teams do this all the time. They relabel trends as risks. And that just our brains are messed up from the very beginning, right? A trend has opportunities in it, right? And so trends and then beliefs. And then you fill out the sentence structure like if X, then Y. You know, if we took this belief, then Y. Then what should we be doing? What is the growth opportunity? And we are really programmed to protect ourselves from downside risks rather than look for opportunities and upside risks. I call them the kickers and the killers. Right. And so the question is not what could happen because you and I can't predict the future and nor can any of your listeners. Right. The question is what could make us and what could break us. And I find teams usually spend about 90 percent of their time on the what 
could break us and less than 10% of their time mm. on the what could make us. And the first time this happens consistently, I have a what could make us conversation with the team. Almost everything they identify could be reclassified as a quick win. Like that is how bad our brains are framed to kind of think of possible upside. So you've got to start building this capability. So align on beliefs, again, repeating, don't ask what could happen, ask what could make us, what could break us and start testing these beliefs as you form some of your other choices. That's absolutely where you start. I love that, man. What could make us? So uh-huh. it, uh, it, it makes so much sense though, right? We, we like we're wired. Our DNA has mm-hmm. negativity bias built into it. So the saber yeah. tooth tiger, you know, isn't going to exactly. kill us. Right. Like, so this is a human condition we're fighting against. Yeah. But yeah. I love it. Start with beliefs. What could make us, what could break us. Don't spend 90% <laughs> of your time on the break us without giving as much energy to the make us. Built the other way. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that makes so much sense. I, I was just thinking, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, huh, how many times have I done the, what could make us? I'm like, I, I don't I don't think I've done it. I'm gonna do it now. You just got me a super motivated. All right. All right. I'm just giving you some homework, which is the professor <laughs> in me is coming out and now we're into our conversation, Darius. I, lo- I so, love it. Yeah. I, I love <laughs> it. Um well I'm gonna ask one more question and then we can move over Absolutely. to uh the greatest question. We'll end up on the greatest mm-hmm. question. Obviously, hey guys, the book is survive, reset, thrive. I'm gonna throw it in here now before we get to the end of the show so that uh we make sure that you guys go out there. The book's coming out, you said February twenty seventh, is that correct? Yes, February 27th, two right. weeks. And, and I'm going to preface this. I have two more questions. So I'm making sure that people okay. don't just get off the show. I want you to listen to this, then <laughs> listen to the next two questions. So make sure you go out and buy the book, Survive, Reset, and Thrive, Implementing High Growth Strategy for Lasting Business Resilience. And it's going to be mm-hmm. where all books are sold. Is that correct, Rebecca? It is. It's already on Amazon, Waterstones, Target, wherever you buy your books, it'll be there already. And if they want to like go learn more about you, where would they learn more about you at? Yeah, absolutely. So just put, you know, survivoresetthrive.com in. You'll get the website with lots of videos, other kind of articles, some background, all the people who have used the book and endorsed it from Formula One teams to companies like WD-40 and Gorilla Glue. So kind of go explore. So survivoresetthrive.com. Look at all of the stuff there. Awesome. All right. So my last two questions, and we'll make sure we put that stuff in the show notes for people that are driving and cannot write this stuff down. Mm -hmm. So one question is like, you know, the way that I, because again, having, I didn't even know I was, you know, I was 25 years old when I got into my industry. I didn't really even realize I was going into like the world's most volatile industry. Um, so, or one of the most volatile industries, I didn't realize I was going to a commission only business. I didn't realize all these things. And I was like, Oh my God, like this is a freaking treadmill. Like the first of the month I'm at zero every month. I, I, and then I got my best year, my worst year back to back. Like who knows, right? I didn't know idea that that's what I got into. So quickly, I was like, man, I, I have to figure out a way to get some reoccurring revenue here because this is just painful, <laughs> right? So that was my first, my, my first of the last two questions are like, how, should, how did you do, do you think that that's a big part of this is starting to reframe your business or starting to look for reoccurring revenue opportunities so that people can start to understand their revenue and cash flow to do some of the protectionary measures that you, that you mentioned? What do, you, do you have a thought around this? Is there any belief that you have? Yeah, so there's no silver bullets, right? And recurring revenue, absolutely. I'm always looking for recurring revenue, but people tend to gravitate towards a silver bullet. Oh, if I just make this a platform, if I just kind of put in recurring revenue, if I change this to a solution rather than a product. So yes, but, and I'm going to use yes, but purposely and get in trouble for my clients where you're not allowed to say that, is there's no silver bullets, right? So what is your actual differentiation? And frankly, like, what's your right to win? right? Why do you have a right to charge clients on a recurring basis? I always say, get clear on that first. And then the monetization will follow from that, right? Really focusing on what is our differentiation. And it's simple questions. 
What do we have that others don't? What can we do that others can't? How can we build moats? You have to answer those three questions first. Then we figure out how to monetize that. Like, what do we have that other companies don't? What can we do that other companies can't? And how can we build moats around our advantage? And then, yes, cash is king, right? Cash was king 20 years ago, 50 years ago, I'm sure 500 years ago, and it still is today, right? So what you need to do to get those minimum boundaries of cash flow in, to your survive basics are absolutely critical. Love it. All right. We're going to end on the greatness question. So I gave it to you before the show, just so you could plant the seed. Here we are at the end of the show. Rebecca, what is the number one barrier to creating greatness that you've overcome in your life and how did you overcome it? So that was actually a really interesting question that I had never thought about, right? I think the number one barrier for me personally was the notion that I don't, is people assuming that you can't because you haven't, right? Well, you know, Females don't do economics and strategy, right? Young people can't do consulting, right? People from so-and-so can't do X, right? And the framing that, you know, this, you know, you can't do that. I mean, I got asked for years, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And it's like this, like, I'm doing it right now. Like, you're, you're watching me do what I want to do, right? But because I was younger and because I was female, it was assumed that I was just kind of hanging out until I'd find what I actually wanted to do and go work for a big company somewhere. So I think that was probably for me. And then I think more generally, it's, it's, it's the framing. We unframe uncertainty as bad. We theorem uncertainty as something to overcome or to get through, to wait through till we get to certainty on the other side. And as soon as you stop doing that, as soon as I stop doing that, and you frame uncertainty merely as a series of future events, which may or may not occur, whether or not those events are good or bad depends on what you're trying to do and how you're set up. So I just worry about figuring out what I want to try to do and then get myself really set up to succeed in whatever environment that is. Love it so much, Rebecca. The book is Survive, Reset, and Thrive. Guys, go out there and get it. Man, what a fun conversation. So much appreciation from here at The Greatness Machine having you on the show, Rebecca. So much gratitude. Thank you for joining us today. No, it was my pleasure. Thanks for giving me the time. I love talking through this stuff. And it's a pleasure to meet you too. Definitely. You guys, go out there, buy the book, support Rebecca. Until next time, peace out. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. Appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. 
Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.